Well, hey everyone, Athena Dean Holtz here, and welcome to the Redeemed and Restored podcast, where we connect every Friday so that together we can intentionally discover the faithfulness of God. So today's episode of Redeemed and Restored is called Spiritual Abuse Defined. I know the last few episodes have been pretty heavy, and this one is too, but I want you to know, really, it does get better, a lot better. But it's important for me to unpack completely all the nuances to my deception in hopes that it will provide insight for you. So you know what to avoid in all relationships, not just where you go to church. The truth is spiritual abuse can occur even in non-church relationships. Have you ever known someone who always plays the God card? They always preface what they say to you by telling you that God told them to do whatever it is, or God told them to make the decision they made. It leaves absolutely no room for you to question or point out red flags, and it's frankly manipulative. And it's common with abusive spouses who verbally, emotionally, and physically abuse their wives to use scripture to minimize their abuse and other scriptures to try and heap shame on their spouse and to keep them from speaking up about their husband's sinful behavior. I even remember a business relationship I had three or four years ago where I was paying out a huge amount of money each month and the results were not at all what I was promised. Every time I would come to the table and question or say, I didn't think we were a good fit. I would just get a sermon about trusting God, not quitting before the harvest came in and on and on, just so I would keep paying that monthly fee. When someone does that to you, using scripture to manipulate you into doing what they want you to do or into going along with what they wanna do, or to get you to pay them for something you feel hesitant about, that is manipulation and a form of spiritual abuse. After about six months of this, I finally told her to stop quoting scriptures to me and cancel my contract. I filmed the intro of this episode in front of the house that Tim and Carla went on to buy in the next town over. He paid himself a hefty salary from Wine Press, so now he could afford to buy his own house. But remember, after quoting the scripture about the Levites not being allowed to own any land, well, they managed to find another scripture in Isaiah 119 to justify buying a new house. Boasting in their spirituality when the verse that said In verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. I'm just shaking my head right now. So seriously, there's a lot to unpack here about spiritual abuse. And I'm going to try and illustrate from my own experience what it looked like to help you recognize and reject it in your own or someone else's life. So take a moment. Write a review on Apple so even more folks can find this podcast and are encouraged. Or you may know someone who needs to hear this message. So please share the link with others. 
You may even want to visit my YouTube channel to see the video version of this podcast and connect with the conversations happening over there. Just head on over to YouTube and type in Athena Dean Holtz into the search bar and you will find the video broadcast there. So, hey, let's get started. Well, hey, everyone, Athena Dean Holtz here for this week's edition of Redeemed and Restored. Today's segment is titled Spiritual Abuse Defined. In my research on spiritual abuse, I found a great article online by Erica Hammonds from Common Grace, which is a ministry out of Australia. She clearly laid out the characteristics of spiritual abusers, and I'd like to share about a third of those with you. Erica says abuse takes many forms. It can be physical, emotional, verbal, sexual, financial, social, and spiritual. It's the latter that I want to highlight today as it has particular pertinence for Christians. It's relatively simple to recognize physical abuse as abuse, though of course not always. However, spiritual abuse can easily be mislabeled as spiritual zeal or even spiritual maturity. These are some characteristics of spiritual abuse that Christians can become aware of to help them identify abuse and an environment where abuse is likely to take place. So spiritual abusers often, number one, exploit the doctrine of our fallenness to accuse, berate, critique, attack, belittle, condemn, or produce guilt in the victim. They may cultivate or take advantage of the victim's conscientiousness in regards to moral matters in order to make them feel like the real problem is the victim's inferior spirituality. They may make the victim feel like the only reason things aren't better is because the victim is immature. Well, let me tell you, once the honeymoon phase was over with Tim Williams, I experienced this kind of behavior constantly. And once he took control of my publishing company, because as a woman, I should not be in leadership over men. So I watched him as not only my employees, but even my authors received that kind of treatment. A common practice was to create this inner circle of those who were in his good graces, usually because they performed well for him by rebuking someone harshly. It pretty much didn't matter what the situation was, but if it didn't go well for him, if it wasn't his outcome that he was going for, then it was the person who was responsible for it that was to blame. They didn't repent fully, or they compromised the truth, or they had hidden sin. Leaders who abuse are skilled at blaming others and not allowing anyone to hold them responsible. Number two, the use of the Bible to justify abusive behavior and insinuate or explicitly state that the victim understands the Bible differently, the difference of opinion is actually a product of their sin. Okay, well, this was business as usual under Tim's leadership. He would quote Psalm 30, the first half of verse 5, his anger lasts only a moment, but his kindness lasts for a lifetime. 
This would act as justification for his rage when things didn't go his way. Any question or disagreement with his interpretation of the scriptures called for a stern rebuke, which he would explain as God's love. When Jesus turned over the tables in the temple, this showed righteous indignation, and Jesus' emotion was described as zeal for God's house. So this biblical example was used by Williams to justify his abuse of anyone who did not comply. Number three, the abuser will use their apparently sophisticated knowledge of the Bible to position themselves outside of the teaching and authority of church leaders. Well, Tim made a point to put himself above the pastors and church leaders in the area where his churches were located. We were his third location. Springfield, Missouri was the first, Aurora, Colorado was the second. And since he preached from Luke 14, 26 about hating your life in order to be a disciple, which was the narrow road, leaving every other church on the wide road, he would not lower himself to associate with other local pastors or even come under the authority of a denomination. Talk about arrogance. He would make a point to criticize anyone who used hermeneutics in the way that they studied and taught the scriptures. So hermeneutics is defined as the branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation, especially of the Bible or literary texts. Because Williams had no professional schooling, no seminary, no training at all in the scriptures. He made sure he never put himself in a position to be challenged by someone who knew more than him. But instead, he justified with the scripture about the apostles being unschooled and ordinary men. He even spoke badly of anyone who used hermeneutics or any other seminary training to understand the Greek or the Hebrew. Okay, number four, spiritual abusers use the Christian community to protect the abuser and isolate the victim. The abuser may make himself or herself vital to significant ministries, in turn making the victim feel responsible for their possible collapse if they revealed the abuse. The abuser may manipulate others so that they think highly of the abuser and think little of the victim, making the victim feel like they wouldn't have any support at all if they did expose the abuse. The abuser might paint themselves as the long-suffering or patiently enduring partner of an erratic or dramatic or emotional woman or child, undermining the victim's credibility whilst underscoring theirs. This was a typical tactic of the Williams ministry. Tim would send his wife, Carla, or his sons, Joshua and Josiah, into an organization or a situation to serve and make themselves indispensable, all the while with the hidden agenda that they were building for themselves a platform of authority from which to preach the cult's doctrine. I saw them do this in so many different ways, volunteering and serving organizations to become indispensable, using his shills to be the people out in the open 
and he stayed behind the curtain like the Wizard of Oz, pulling all the levers. Those being manipulated and victimized were afraid to criticize because the organization would fall apart if all of the volunteers quit. Okay, number five, abusers isolate the victim socially, making excuses why the victim cannot participate in social or spiritual gatherings and limiting their access to either information or support or both. This was a common tactic. If you weren't lining up with Tim's agenda, if you weren't hearing from God right, which meant you agreed with him, or repenting well enough, which meant you were taking the blame for everything and admitting Tim is right about all things, then you were not allowed to attend church services. You would have to stay home and fast and pray. And this might be the only way God could get through to you. So he would quote the scripture out of Numbers 12, where Miriam, you know, she spoke against Moses and so she was punished with leprosy and put outside the camp for seven days where no one spoke to her. Oh yes, you learned quickly that questioning Williams or challenging his actions or his doctrine would constitute what is known as shunning. Shunning is defined as social control mechanism used most commonly in small, tight-knit social groups to punish those who violate the most serious group rules. It is related to exile and banishment, although shunning is based on social rather than physical isolation or separation. I remember a common tactic Tim used if he decided someone wasn't listening to God. Then what they would do is they needed to be taught a lesson. So since the person was ignoring God in Tim's opinion, he would command everyone in the church to ignore that person for 24 or 48 hours or longer. Okay, number six, abusers use Bible passages about generosity to justify controlling the victim's access to money. I remember early on, after they'd manipulated us into buying the house for them, that I was trying to decide about upgrading my computer with some current revenue that was coming into my business. They quoted Philippians 2.4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. They suggested that their foster son receive a new computer and agreeing that that would be living out the scripture. See the subtlety there? They got me to buy the computer for him so they didn't have to. They saved on rent and providing for the young people in their care. Whew. Okay, number seven, spiritual abusers use Bible passages about rebuking to, to justify verbal abuse. There was so much verbal abuse, it was ridiculous. I know I got to a place where I just became numb because it was just so excessive. I remember one time after Tim took over running my publishing company and I was told not to ask to work on Saturday, even though like I was way behind on my work and I needed to get caught up. I couldn't just leave it 
So I asked anyway. What I received for that request was a tirade over the phone as I stood in the middle of a grocery store. Tim, like, called down judgment from heaven on me for being rebellious. And these are just a few of the scriptures that were preached to us that encouraged us to put up with verbal abuse without seeing how wrong it really was. Ecclesiastes 7.5, it's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. Or Proverbs 27.5, better is an open rebuke than love that is concealed. Number eight, they use Bible passages about unity to justify silencing their victim. I thought it was a little odd at first when the no gossip policy was promoted as the godly way to live and the only way to be a Christian. All the scriptures about being of one mind and scriptures about gossip and slander and the tongue were quoted, especially that one in James 3 about how no one can tame the tongue because it's full of evil and set on fire from hell. You could not say anything negative about anyone or anything, even if it was true and there was a problem to address, and even if it was to warn someone. This paved the way to keep those of us under his leadership and even customers of wine press from bringing up anything that was wrong a service not delivered, or maybe botched or mishandled. If you tried to bring it up, you were shushed and told gossip is a sin. Can you see how this silenced victims using scripture out of context? The gut-wrenching part is that this behavior and attitude pounded into us, created an environment that allowed sexual abuse with young girls to occur without anyone speaking up. I never had a clue it was going on behind the scenes and only after walking away and one young girl speaking up did it come to light. I hope these examples help you become more perceptive of this kind of behavior. It's so much more prevalent than we realize. And honestly, because we all want to believe the best about people, it's easy to just shrug off these types of behaviors, telling ourselves it couldn't really be all that bad. When in reality, it probably is. We have to remember along with all those scriptures about love covering over a multitude of sins and love always hopes that Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So, hey, thanks for joining me today. I look forward to connecting with you next week on Redeemed and Restored. And as usual, I'd sure appreciate it if you would do the drill. Like, follow, share, comment. Let me know what's happening in your world. I would love to connect with you. So, hey, my name is Athena Dean Holtz. 
and this is redeemed and restored. So thanks for joining us today on the Redeemed and Restored podcast, brought to you by Athena Dean Holtz and the Romans 828 Bookstore, a division of Redemption Press. I'd love to have you review and share this podcast with friends, family, and others who could use the encouragement. And be sure to check out my YouTube channel at Athena Dean Holtz for more tips and tools to help you find the faithfulness of God. So thanks for joining us today. See you next week for another episode of Redeemed and Restored.